What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip of TFTC. Sat back down with Anas El Haji, who I haven't sat down with in about two years. The last time we sat down was during the aftermath of the oil and gas prices, where the oil prices go negative here in the U.S. in March or April of 2020. So it's been a while. A lot has happened. A lot of what Anas predicted in that episode has come to fruition. Over the last two years, and very recently, uh, in reaction to the Russian-Ukraine conflict war that's going on right now, uh, particularly around the pricing of oil contracts in yuan and rubles. So he was sending a signal back then a couple of years ago, and I think he just delivered us a lot of signal now. I think this is a very important episode. I usually don't do this, but I think you should share this with friends, family, to get this information out there. I think the, the situation that's unfolding in global energy markets is pretty dire. The politicians and the corporate press are not doing any of us individuals any favors because they are not characterizing the causes of the problem and the severity of the problem. They're, they're not communicating that at all. These people don't have any integrity. They don't have any competence. We cannot depend on them. Share this episode with friends and family. Nas knows what he's talking about. He's been right in the past on this show. I think he's right about what's unfolding now and just how bad the situation is and what may come from that later this year and beyond if, if we don't get our shit together. This trip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to bring you a suite of products, financial services. Uh, they have their their loan desk. You can use your Bitcoin as collateral to get same day USD liquidity. You can use their IRA product to create a retirement account uh, with Bitcoin that allows you to hold your own keys. And then they have their Vault product, which is their two or three multi-sig quorum product, which you hold two keys. So you, you engage with the Vault. You set up a Vault. It's a two or three multi-sig. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one. You always have control of your Bitcoin if you have control of those two keys. But if you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. It's a collaborative custody model. They're offering a white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero to having a vault set up with a thousand bucks worth of sats in it. You're going to get $50 off that package if you tell them the TFTC sent you. They're going to get you hardware wallets. They're going to have many video conference calls with you to get you comfortable. They're going to help you get your vault set up. And then again, you're going to get a thousand bucks worth of sats. Sats dumped in the vault. Go check out everything they have going on at unchained.com. They're going to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model and then help you uh, use your Bitcoin to get some financial services. And they've got many more products in the pipeline from what I understand. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Hope you're using Brains OS Plus firmware right now because the price is absolutely collapsing and therefore hash price is collapsing as well as, as difficulty continues to rise and hash rate continues to rise. Uh, Brains OS Plus firmware allows you to stack more sats with your ASICs because it allows you to produce more hashes with those ASICs. So if you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, particularly right now when hash price is collapsing and the price of Bitcoin is collapsing, you are uh, not operating your mining operation as profitably and effectively as you could be. You should be running this even if the price is up as well and hash price is up. 
just so that you're stacking as many sats as possible. But particularly right now, if you have an ASIC that is compatible Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it on that ASIC yet, you probably want to do that to uh, make sure that you're uh, able to weather these these low hash price environments. You can go to brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com uh, to see everything they have going on. They have insights.brains.com if you want to weigh the profitability and visualize the profitability of running an ASIC with brains on it. You can do so at insights.brains.com. Daniel Frump uh, had a good thread this morning on the economics of cooling versus air-cooled, cooling immersion versus air-cooled, excuse me, and uh, how downloading brains in those two environments affects profitability as well. So go check that out. Um, go check out their blog. It's, they're the parent, parent company, Slushpool. Um, so if you use Brains OS Plus firmware and you point your hash at Slushpool, you're going to get 0% pool fees, which is a nice little vig there. You don't have to point it at Slush, but if you do, you're going to get that. Um, yeah, go check them out. If you have an ASIC that's compatible, Brains OS Plus firmware, you're not using it, you're leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. Last but not least, this we're brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you Freaks, a lending platform that leverages Bitcoin's native SIG properties. You put up Bitcoin in a two or three multi-SIG escrow wallet. You hold one key, your counterparty in the trade holds one key and Hoddle Hoddle holds the third key. You don't have control of your Bitcoin in this model, but you do have visibility into the wallet so that, that you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. You put the sats up, you get stable coins in return. And as long as you're paying back that stable coin loan, uh, plus the interest associated with it, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. If you have stable coins laying around, you want yield on those stable coins, you can do that via lend.hodlhodl.com. You lend out to these Bitcoiners looking to use their Bitcoin as collateral um, to get some liquidity. Lend.hodlhodl.com. Please enjoy this episode with Anas. If you're listening, um, no matter where you're listening, uh, please like, subscribe, rate, review, uh, give us give us um, some subscription and likes and reviews. This helps the show a lot. And as we discussed in this episode, it is getting to a point where there aren't a lot of competent and integral uh, or corporate press entities with any integrity. We like to think that we have integrity here at TFTC. And any anything you can do to support us is massively appreciate it because we do want to get the word out to more people and so subscribing liking uh subscribing to youtube supporting us via podcasting 2.0 apps uh really helps the show and helps get it out there to more people because that's what really what our goal is this year is to begin throwing flames or excuse me throwing gas on the flame that is tftc to to really blow it up and get it out to as many people as possible because we feel like it's imperative that people get more quality information which we aim to provide enjoy you've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free if you talk about a fed just gone nuts all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Like we're saying, the, the, the world 
of global energy markets is is completely insane. I'm happy to be sitting down with Anas El Haji again. It's been a while. Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. Uh, it's it's been a while, but it, it, throughout this period since the first show, as you recall, uh, I mean things went crazy, and one of the uh, developments that were related to the first show was the uh, uh, Russian leadership asking the Europeans to pay uh, a ruble for the uh, Russian gas supplies. So uh, that was one of the things that we, uh, as you recall, we discussed about pricing uh, oil and gas, etc. Yeah, it's all come full circle. That was a very prescient episode. Sure. If you go back and listen to the first time Anas was on the show, this is what we discussed. It has come to fruition. Obviously, we have war between Russia and Ukraine break out early this year. And this is coming on the back end of supply disruptions that have been growing uh, throughout the, the COVID pandemic. And now it seems like shit is officially hitting the fan. We have energy crises popping up across the world. I mean, you mentioned natural gas uh, in Russia. Obviously, that has become a, a, a big topic of discussion with the ongoing war. Europe's trying to uh, not purchase oil and gas from Russia, but they're finding that they desperately need those fuel sources. And then on top of that, we have diesel shortages popping up. And it, it seems like a lot of the energy policy stuff that, that has been decided on in the last decade is is coming to to bite us in the ass. What What is your perspective on the global? And, uh, and uh, in addition to that, since the first show, we had the leak from the Saudis uh, basically sending a hint to the U.S. leadership that they want to get their revenues from oil sales to China in Chinese currency. And we discussed those issues at that time on the differentiation between pricing oil in dollar and getting revenues in non-dollars. So for those who are interested, they can go back to that recording and uh, listen to those discussions. Uh, right now, one of the uh, main problems we are focusing on is whether we are going to hit a recession or whether we are already in a recession and what did the impact of that on the energy markets, including oil prices and natural gas prices. Right now, as you all know, oil prices are still above $100, especially for Brent. We have a major decline today, by the way. We have major issues in the energy markets uh, since the morning. Uh, but natural gas prices are very high. Oil prices are very high. The price of food is, is high throughout the world. And that's affecting economies. And many people, especially those who are focusing on macroeconomics, uh, think that if we are not already in a recession, we are heading for a recession. And what would that do to energy markets? And this is now one of the biggest concerns next to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people talking stagflation here in the U.S. specifically. Obviously, we had the negative GDP print uh, for Q1. Q2 numbers will come out at end of July. And if that trend continues and we have another negative GDP print and we're officially in a recession, uh, but the supply chain issues are causing prices to rise in energy and food specifically, like you just mentioned. And what happens if we get to the end of July, that data comes out and the Fed is forced to act via Absolutely. interest rate policy. Absolutely. 
absolutely and in fact one of the uh, main uh, historical events that we've seen historically was if you go back and look at the period between 2002 and 2008 uh, in fact since September 11th uh, what we've seen is uh, a continuous increase in oil prices, and prices hit $147 uh, at that time. But when prices increased from 30, 40, 50, all the way up to 147, we did not see the economies of Europe, the United States, Canada, uh, India, China, South Korea uh, being hurt. Uh, and instead, we've seen uh, good economic growth with high oil prices, and no one really worried about high oil prices at that time and their impact on the economy. So what happened then that makes things different now? And what happened at that time is that was the only period in history where we've seen increase in oil prices or continuous increase in oil prices with continuous increases in incomes, that disposable income, continuous increase in government spending, military spending, spending on security, while the dollar was going down and interest rate was going down. Now we have the opposite. The dollar is very high, being going up and is high, and interest rate is going up, and governments are trying to control inflation by reducing government spending. At the same time, we are seeing increases in taxes in some countries like India, where they are increasing taxes on fuel, where fuel prices are among the highest in the world, if not the highest. Uh, at the same time, because of the boom in real estate, especially in a place like Texas and where you are right now, uh, uh, the uh, property taxes, since they are a percentage of the, of the estimated value, are gone up. So that constitutes an increase in taxes. So everything we almost everything we have now the opposite of what we had in the past. And therefore, you have a combination that is suitable for a recession no matter what. Even if we are not a recession, we are heading for one simply because of those macro variables uh, and the way they work with oil prices. Yeah, it's a scary situation. How So in your perspective, how dire is a situation in terms of what is going to unfold throughout the rest of the year? Well, luckily... Luckily, all of this coming after the lockdown during COVID. So anything we are going to see is going to be, uh, in a sense, less than what we've seen in 2020. Uh, and, and people will be thankful because the memory is still fresh. Uh, if we did not have COVID, it would have, it would have looked really bad. But because of the lockdown during COVID, a lot of people lost their jobs. They got locked at home, etc. Now at least, okay, if I lo lose my job, I still can travel, I can visit my mother, I can go around, etc. So uh, yes, it's bad, but because of the lockdown during COVID, things are not going to look as bad. And so how do you see the situation between Russia and Europe playing out with their gas? Obviously, Russia's asking for rubles for the delivery of gas. You have Western nations vehemently uh, tr trying to make sure that those exchanges of energy don't happen. You're, you have European politicians telling people to skip showers and to turn their lights off uh, to to protest against Russia so that they don't need their gas. Uh, you have Russia being uh, saber-rattled right now where they're probably getting angry and they, they could get to a point where like, even if you want the gas, we're not going to 
deliver it to you. Like in my mind, that whole situation between Russia and Europe specifically needs to be settled in a diplomatic fashion at some point this summer if we're, if we're going to avoid a, a global catastrophe because right, that, that natural gas affects fertilizer prices, it affects obviously energy prices, uh, and that could have very strong ripple effects across the global economy. Several points here. Uh, the first point is the only reason why oil prices went above $100 is because of the invasion. Otherwise, we would not have hit $100, or that would have been probably in the 80s. So the Russian invasion caused the prices to go above $100. The second point is uh, that the reason why we have this, this situation in the energy markets are the sanctions, not the invasion itself. So it's the reaction of the United States and Europe to the invasion that is uh, directly causing the shortages that we are talking about. Yet, uh, Europe in particular was suffering from energy crisis before the invasion anyway because of their green uh, policies that went sour. Uh, the third point here is this, and I really want people to focus on this point and go check them out because everything I'm going to mention is available to everyone to read. Justin Trudeau, sorry, I have allergies, so I have to kind of wipe my eyes here. Um, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, uh, has already uh, uh, decided that Canada would not or would ban uh, crude oil imports from Russia. And the media that supports him basically showed him as a hero, a person who really care about human rights, who care about Ukrainians, etc. But Canada does not import any crude from Russia. But the media still talk about Trudeau banning the crude, crude imports from Russia. The Prime Minister of England has already said that the UK will ban uh, uh, oil imports from Russia. But if you look at the text, by the end of 2022, Shell Oil Company said that it will not buy oil from Russia. But if you look at the press release on their website, it says they will not buy crude from Russia in the spot market. Because most of their contracts, basically most of what they buy is contracts, not spot. Yet a couple of days later, because of the decline in the price of Russian crude, they were tempted to buy from the spot market and they did buy uh, uh, a tanker full of oil uh, and they were caught by the media and then they decided we are going to donate all the profit to the Ukrainians. Uh, if you look, people think that oil companies left Russia. They did not. Uh, they think that the oil services like Baker Hughes, like uh, Halliburton, like Schlumberger, have already left Russia, and therefore the oil industry in Russia is going to suffer because Western service companies left Russia. No. Look at the fine print. The fine print said, we are not going to do additional investment or a new investment in Russia. If you look at McDonald, McDonald decided to leave Russia, but McDonald is still open in Russia. Why? Because it does not include the franchisees. Uh, Danon stores, uh, uh, Danon, uh, you know, the, the, the one you see when you buy yogurt, you see Danon. Mm -hmm. uh, they own uh, stores in Russia. They said people thought they are closing their stores. No, they are not going to open a new stores in Russia. 
So everyone is playing with the words. But in reality, what is the impact on, on, on Putin? President Biden says when he, when he banned Russian imports, no one knew that he is banning Russian imports after two months. They thought he banned Russian imports at that day. And in his speech, he said, we imposed restrictions on Russian banks so they cannot use SWIFT. Well, that was not correct because it's only on some local banks that, banks that have no impact. Now we'll come, I will answer your question directly. And the evidence that he did not ban SWIFT because Europeans are using uh, Gazprom Bank to pay for Russian gas. So they did not ban all the Russian banks. But look at the game they played. Putin says that I want the Europeans to pay in ruble, and I want them to buy the ruble from the central bank. The European says, look, 97, 95 or 97% uh, of the contracts have the, the, the currency listed in them. So it's either uh, dollar or euro. And therefore, any violation of the contract, and we know this in law, any even one word, you are violating the whole contract. So we cannot violate the contract, and you cannot either. And Putin has some good legal team. They understood it because if they violate the contract while Russian assets are confiscated in the West, people can sue him and take the compensation from the assets, from the frozen assets. They know that. At the same time, they told him, look, and we cannot buy rubles either because the Russian central bank is on the list of sanctioned entities. So I'm not going to violate the contract and I'm not going to violate the law. I cannot because I go to jail or my company will be fine. Well, a couple of days later, what they did, the Putin administration came back and said, look, we are going to honor the contract. So here is a bank that is not sanctioned, which is Gazprom Bank. You deposit the money in euro or dollar, just like what the contract says, in this bank. And then this bank is going to convert it to rubles. So we, once you give me the euros and the dollars, I am going to convert it for you to rubles. And since you cannot violate the sanctions in your country and you don't want to deal with the central bank, this bank will do it. And then I'm going to open accounts in rubles in your name. So you don't have to touch anything. Just give me your name. And I will open one in your name and then I will receive the money in, in rubles. And in front of the Russian people, I look really a hero because I already forced you to pay in rubles. That's really what's happening. And well, it seems like it's working though, right? Because the ruble is is pretty strong right now. Well, it's strong, but it's not in a free market because what they did is they played other games. First of all, we don't have enough rubles in the system to pay for it. So that's one reason for the increase. The other reason is they officially price the ruble in gold until the end of June. So this is a, uh, in a sense, a fixed exchange rate, not a free exchange rate. Because from now until June, it's fixed, is, is related to gold. Mm -hmm. It's not back to gold because people, some people in the media kept saying, it's not back to gold. Because if it's back to gold and gold prices go up, I can take the rubles exactly what happened in the United States in the early 70s. If gold prices go up, I can take the rubles and tell Putin, uh, cash in, give yes. me the gold. So they, they were smart enough. They did not peg it to the gold. What they did is they priced it in gold. 
So no one has claims on the ruble and gold. So this is an artificial rate. This is not a market, uh, a market rate. And then they turned around and they said, okay, we are going to force uh, Poland and Bulgaria to pay a rubles. And the, uh, the Western press made a big deal out of it. But they ignored one fact that the only reason why, let's go back to the legal issues I discussed earlier with the contracts. People did not say that the contracts were ending before the end of the month. So he was forcing them simply because there were no contracts. And if they want to sign new contracts, they can do it based on negotiations. So he is not violating any of the contracts. And the, um, uh, the, the press statement that was made by uh, the uh, German counselor was absolutely incorrect because he said this is a violation of the contract. There was no contract because the contracts ended. And, and Putin knew that the amount of gas sold to those countries is very small. And therefore, if they stop completely, they are not going to affect Russia while can, he can send a clear message to the big customers like Germany and Italy that dare you mess with me because I can cut you off the same way I cut them off. And I think if they want to call the bluff, they can because he cannot. So is this just a temporary transitionary period where for outside of Poland and Bulgaria, where he's set up the Gazprom bank accounts, he's taking in euros and dollars, converting them within Gazprom to rubles, and then showing uh, the Russians, I guess, they're paying in not, rubles. Not really. Uh, there are two points here, I think, for the audience they need to know. Uh, the first one is uh, the only reason why Poland was able to take it because their storage was 80% full. Some analysts, they took that and they said, look, the NATO is united against uh, Putin, and this is a good sign, and thanks for the Polish government, and this, this. I don't think this. I think what happened is they are comfortable right now, but once we have gas shortages, every country on its own. So Poland, uh, and I'll give you an example, because one of the objectives of Putin seemed like was we have pipelines going through Poland to Europe. And Poland, uh, uh, Putin thought if he cut off Poland, then he can force the Polish government to do what Ukraine did about, what, uh, I don't know how many years, 12 years ago. Uh, they, uh, Ukraine did not pay uh, the uh, cost of gas that it consumed, the Russian gas. So what Putin did, he cut off the Russian exports to Ukraine to force Ukraine to pay for the gas, and it was in billions. What the Ukrainians did at that time, they tapped into gas going to Europe, and they caused a crisis in Europe. Putin, learning from this lesson, he thought, if I cut off Poland, the Polish are going to do just like the Ukrainians. They are going to tap into the pipelines going to Europe, and I can fragment Europe, I can fragment NATO, because he really wants them to split. But they did not. And that's why we've seen those analysts talking about the unity, but they missed the point. The point is they have enough gas. If they don't have enough gas, we, are, we go to the winter and there is not enough gas. You are going to see Poland breaking up with NATO. You are going to see them tapping into those pipelines and taking gas that's supposed to go to Germany or others. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's one point. The other point is we are going to see some permanent changes in supplies. Because even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. 
forced Germany to ignore Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline that was built through the sea directly between Russia and Germany to avoid Ukraine. So it's supposed to uh, replace the Ukrainian gas line. And then before it starts operation, they stopped it completely, and a lot of people think it's dead by now. Well, what the U.S., why the U.S. did that? The U.S. did that because everyone knows that the U.S. is becoming one of the world's major exporters of LNG. Mm -hmm. And the natural market for U.S. LNG is Western Europe. So you want to guarantee, as a superpower, you want to guarantee a market for your product for years to come and for decades to come. And this was an opportunity to stop Nord Stream to guarantee your market share in LNG as a replacement. And then the war happened, and this kind of engraved in stone the market share of LNG, of American LNG in Europe. And that's why they are asking Germany to build those uh, regasification plants so they can buy from the U.S. and they don't depend on Russia. So we are going to see some major changes that uh, become permanent. And one of them is the dependence on U.S. LNG in this case, which means that less Russian gas in uh, in Europe. We are going to see a push to lower oil imports from Russia, and that's going to be successful. So we are going to see reduction, but we are not going, we are not going to see elimination. Some countries that depend uh, just kind of like tiny uh, dependence on, on Russia, they can eliminate that dependence. That's going to be permanent. But we are not going to see a permanent cutoff of Russian oil and gas in Europe. And one of the problems that people are not talking about is that what Europe did is kind of very strange and shows you how, uh, and excuse my language here, how dumb the European leadership have become. With the push toward climate change policies, they are changing their dependence from fossil fuel to mining lithium, cobalt, (laughs) graphite, nickel, and other things that are needed for the green economy. So just we are moving from one set of natural resources, from dependence on one set of natural resources to another set of of natural resources. But this new set is concentrated while oil and gas and coal exist in so many countries, and some of them are local in Europe, like Norway and the UK, others, while Europe does not have any of the others that needed for the green economy. They have to depend on fewer countries around the world, while most of the processing of those metals is in China. So it's just kind of very strange to, you are moving from dependence on uh, natural resource to another natural resource that is has more volatility and that is more dangerous and more expensive. The other one is, when it comes to natural gas, they are moving dependence from one superpower which is Russia, to another superpower, which is the United States. So they are not solving their own problems. And there is no uh, uh, kind of uh, domestic solution because they are not even focusing on domestic solutions in this case. They think green energy, which means that solar and wind is going to solve their problem. Well, that's another joke because solar panels are coming from China. Uh, The minerals are coming from other nations. And they are going to end up what the Saudis intended. The Saudis are saying, look, you don't want my oil, that's fine. You don't want my petrochemicals, that's fine. 
look, you want your electric vehicles, go for it. I'm going to make sure that the body of that electric vehicles and the tires are made from my oil and gas. I want to make sure that I will export that oil and gas to you embedded in something else. And Europe is asleep at the wheel. One of the jokes we've seen in Europe today is what happened in Norway, which is kind of really ironic. They spent all their oil money to, to buy electric vehicles. What is sad about it is all those electric vehicles are imported. Norway does not make electric vehicles. If they were making them, I understand that. But they have to import every single electric vehicle. So they imported those vehicles. And we're talking, as you know, about vehicles that cost 70, 80, 90, sometimes $120,000. Subsidies were huge. The benefits were huge. Uh, all, all those extra benefits that come with the use of electric vehicles, uh, uh, such as not paying for parking or using the bus lanes, etc. Then after people spend all this money and after the government spent all those oil money in the last four or five years, all of a sudden the officials are telling people to park their electric vehicles and ride the bus. <laughs> it's, it's a clown world out there. You know? I mean, it, we talked about this the first time you're on, and I've been talking about this ad nauseum on this show for the last year and a half. The idiocy of energy policy across the world is astounding. And the, the hypocrisy of it all, like you just mentioned, uh, you, you're going to phase out fossil fuels, but then you're going to go uh, dig up all these rare earth metals in other parts of the world and then import that, making it inherently more expensive. Here is, here is one for you, because this is, this is very interesting. Now those countries are shifting to dependence on U.S. LNG as a replacement for Russian gas. That's one question I had. Do we have enough LNG to, to replace that supply? No, we don't have enough LNG, but the, the uh, Europe dependence on gas right now is more on the U.S. than Russia. So we reached that point. But the problem is all U.S. LNG going to Europe is coming from the Gulf of Mexico. And what is Gulf of Mexico known for? It's known for those hurricanes. Some of them are disastrous hurricanes. Remember Katrina, remember Rita, remember Ivan, mm -hmm. uh, all those hurricanes. So what, Europe, what will Europe do when we end up with those hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico from where they are going to replace U.S. gas? Not only that, natural gas prices right now in the United States are very high. And mark my words, if they continue like this, we are going to see before the elections, we're going to see senators and congressmen calling on the U.S. government to ban or reduce LNG exports to Europe. What would Europe do? They're, they're between a rock and a hard place. They're, Absolutely. They're going to have to go Absolutely. back to Russia and say, all right, we don't care about these sanctions. Absolutely. That, I mean, once they have uh, uh, shortages, you are going to see the breakup in, in uh, EU policies. You are going to see the breakup in NATO. And you are going to see all kind of, of fights among them because of those energy shortages. After all, those politicians want to stay uh, in their seats. After all, those politicians, uh, the sincere ones, want to take care of their populations and country. They don't want to, to, to uh, uh, take care of someone else's country. So in the long run, do you think this is actually a good thing that we're having this come? It's not Russia and Ukraine conflict specifically, but this is 
energy conversation globally? Or do you think this is going to wake people up and countries up and politicians up to the fact that you need to approach energy security and policy in a much different way moving forward? The problem is when you have climate change as a religion, uh, it's very hard to see convergence. And to give you some examples, uh, when it comes to sound energy policy, if you, you need to have energy security. And to have energy security, you need to have diversity of energy sources, and you have to, to have diversity of supplies. And Europe did the two mistakes. They focused the energy, and they focused their imports. The other issue is, if you worry about climate change and you want to have good policies, good environmental policies to protect the environment, you need to balance three things. You need to balance energy security with economic security with environmental security. If you sacrifice energy security at the altar of climate change, you are gone. You cannot even protect the environment anymore. We have enough evidence from Europe and around the world that, for example, Italy is going back to coal. Germany is going back to coal. Why? Because they sacrificed energy security and all of a sudden now they want to go back and, and kind of fix that energy security thing at the expense of environmental security. In places in India where they increase taxes on fuel substantially, despite, uh, yes, uh, some of the fuel is subsidized, but fuel prices are still way higher than the past. We've seen mothers basically going to the old coal mines and, and taking coal and burning it for, to cook or going and, and, and cutting trees from the forest uh, to cook. Uh, uh, so all of a sudden, the objective was, okay, I want to raise prices, so I want to get a cleaner environment, and all of a sudden, I'm getting the opposite. Uh, well, so that's what, like, I think as this crisis intensifies, this is going to create a, a large pendulum swing against the, the climate religion that has taken over the world and, and forced this into this situation. I don't know because we've seen fanatics around the world. We've seen the killings. We've seen all kinds of things, etc. So uh, it remains to be seen uh, how many people are going to convert because if you really look at the cults around the world, uh, how many cults basically just decided to wake up in the morning and change religion? Very no. few. Very few, that's right. But there is that silent majority, right? I think about U.S.-centric. There's probably a silent majority that when you know, the, the hens come home to roost, I'm like, all right, like I was posturing this way, like I, I like the environment and the climate change narrative might be real because it seemed like the the correct thing to do politically. It seems like that's where the trend was going. But I think there, once once you have rolling, so do you think that this is going to lead to like rolling blackouts? Obviously, gas prices are going to to increase significantly. Um, the cost to heat and cool your home is going to increase. Uh, like, what are the repercussions of this failed energy policy and the supply disruptions that are coming in your mind? As long as the silent majority is not standing up to the media, we are not going to see a change. The media uh, basically is going crazy. And I will give you, I already collected so many examples. When I talk about so many examples, like in hundreds, just to give you uh, a, a single example on this, there was a headline news the other day that Africa is going electric, which means they are talking about electric vehicles. Africa, the whole continent of Africa <laughs> is going electric. And then you read the news, and the news is about Zimbabwe, okay, 
using one electric vehicle and one charger. <laughs> so they took one little PR stunt yeah. in Zimbabwe and thrust it on the whole continent. News that this city in the United States, this city is going electric because it's buying electric buses, six electric buses. And you go to the details and they are talking about this city buying six electric buses. And wow, look at the old demand. The old demand is going to collapse. It's going to decline. And then you go to the city website and you read the news. The city is buying 300 buses. Six of them are electric. <laughs> okay. A major media outlet that does research and consulting published a report last year saying that there is a city in the United States that's converting all its buses to electric. That was two years ago, by the way, not, not last year, before, just before COVID. Uh, they are converting all their buses to electric. It's a major city. And in their estimates, that will reduce all demand by 60,000 barrels a day. I contacted the guy in charge and I told him, you guys wrote this. And he said, yes. And he started, you know, knowing who I am. So he kind of like trying to look fancy in front of me. And we did this and we did this. So I let him speak and then let him speak. And then I said, okay, hold on just a second. There is a problem here. That city does not have a single bus that run on diesel. They all run on CNG, that compressed natural gas. And he said, really? <laughs> I said, yes. So therefore this reduces the demand for gas, does not reduce the demand for oil. So he promised that before their annual conference, they are going to make that change in the report. They did not. That shows you they did it on purpose. And they insisted on publishing that information on purpose. So the silent majority is not going to do anything as long as we have a media like that. I completely agree. It's disgusting. Like, how does it, what is in it for the media to, to be lying to that I degree? don't know, but let me tell you, there are major media outlets contacted the people who write columns for them and told them that was two, three years ago. They told them, sorry, we cannot publish any more oil articles. We cannot publish? Yes. So they're being banned from even covering the subject. I have journalists who contact me on almost on a weekly basis saying, we like your tweets, we like what you said here, etc. Unfortunately, we cannot write about it because my editor uh, banned us from writing on uh, uh, this and this. This is why we need alternative media. This is why I'm happy that you're on the show, hopefully. Absolutely. I mean, it's just very, very frustrating. I mean, it, it, it goes to the limit. Uh, let me give you another uh, uh, example. Uh, uh, I wrote an article, which is a fantastic article, not because I wrote it, because everyone said it was a fantastic article. And the person in charge basically liked it. They submitted it, and then the editor of that newspaper said, we cannot publish this article without an opposing point of view. What was the article about? Well, I'm, I'm not going to mention it now because people yeah. would know. I don't want to. But the idea here is, they, they, why? Because it was something they did not like. Hmm. There's a bunch of fear-mongering out there about oil and gas money putting propaganda out there, but it seems like it may be coming from the other side where you can't even write about the subject. And it's a very, like, that's what really aggravates me is this is such an important part of human life. Like energy is what makes our world possible today. And let me tell you a story because this story tells a lot about the media. Uh, a few years ago, Saudi Arabia had the longest serving minister who is Ali and Naimi. 
very decent man and it's very hard to anger him. And there was this big OPEC meeting in Vienna and he was leaving the hotel with his entourage going to a, a, a dinner event. And as usual, hundreds of uh, journalists basically were surrounding him while he's walking and everyone, you can, if, you, if you can picture this from like uh, the fourth uh, story uh, in a building or mm -hmm. uh, through a drone or something, you can see it like moving. Uh, the whole people are moving with him. And uh, this lady from SNBC uh, stood in front of him as she was walking backwards and she started yelling at him and accusing him uh, of destroying the environment, being against climate change. And she went on a rant. And, and she just, I mean, she just wanted to make a statement. And the man is, I mean, he's an old man, but he is really kind of prestigious and royal in a sense. And he was walking calmly and suddenly his face got red and he got really angry. He stopped and he looked at her and he said, lady, you want to talk about climate change? And remember, we are talking about Saudi Arabia here. You want to talk about climate change? It passed through my country tens of thousands of years ago. <laughs> yeah. So don't teach me about climate change. It's, uh, it is a religion and it, it, it needs to be continue to be called out because it's, I mean, it, we talked about it last week. I had Dr. Saifedina Moose on who wrote the Bitcoin standard. And it, that's what really frustrates me about the climate hysterics. Like that MSNBC reporter probably flew over there on a jet, was using a cell phone to send tweets out about the subject that were being stored in a server farm being powered by uh, some hydrocarbon. Um, and it's, it seems like humanity in regards to, to climate and energy policy, we, we're living in an idiocracy. And at what, like, maybe that's what it it's going to take, the rolling blackouts and $10 a gallon gas here in the United States to really... Let me, let me uh, clarify this point to the audience. You and I are not, uh, in a sense, denying climate change, and we are not against climate change policies. We are talking about the hypocrisy of it. So it is really the hypocrisy that's killing us, and that's what we are criticizing here. We don't want to discuss the issues related to climate change because this is really past that point. We are talking here about the hypocrisy of the profit of the profits of climate change and the lies and other actions they are taking and the, the way they are limiting our freedoms in the name of climate change. So I don't want the audience to think we are denying, all of us enjoy the clean water, we enjoy clean air, we enjoy all of that stuff. But the issue is, this is really the hypocrisy of those guys and the hypocrisy of those people that is killing us. And that's what we are talking about on, on the plane and and the tweets and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it seems, it seems like the so one of, particularly with for the solar solar industry, it, it became a big meme within the last year that uh, a lot of the polysilicon that the solar industry is using is being made in China, and it's being made at, at the hands of, of Uyghur slaves. And I, did, did I read correctly last week that the Biden administration? Uh, it sent a letter out to the solar industry to do an audit on their supply chains to find out if that polysilicon is actually coming from Shenzhen, and if so, 
that they're going to need to find polysilicon somewhere else, uh, which would completely annihilate the the um, financial projections of these solar projects. Yes, uh, there was news about uh, uh, basically uh, the solar panel producers in the United States love that because that, that's it's really a form of subsidy to them once you have restrictions. Uh, so it helped the U.S. solar industry, but at the same time, it slows down the use of solar, and therefore the Biden administration cannot achieve its goals simply because you don't have enough supplies coming uh, to the uh, to the United States. And uh, the irony here is, while they appear they are doing it for human rights issues, it's really not about human rights because if they care about human rights, they would have care about people in Syria or other places. Uh, where people are being killed. Probably you've seen that video uh, last week that's been released uh, about how uh, uh, members of the Syrian army basically been uh, killing people. If you haven't seen it, I'll send it to you because it's one of the most horrific videos you would ever see in your life where uh, they were, let's say, they, they just kidnapped people from the street and they put them like on a second floor a building with no walls, and they told them, look, there is a sniper coming in. I'm going to help you pass the street, so run. And they run from the second floor or third floor, and there is nothing. And they just fall into a big uh, uh, ditch uh, that is full of uh, tires. And then while they are falling, basically, others will spray them with bullets. And that was a game they were playing. And as if this was not enough, basically, they just uh, grabbed some people and they just started using knives, uh, 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 I mean, piercing their bodies with knives and all that stuff. And all of this was on their own phones because they thought that was very cool. And the Biden administration said nothing. As if, so uh, it's very hard to, and to kind of take the issue, okay, we are doing this to solar panels because of human rights. It just, that's, that's the point. Yeah, I mean... When it comes to hypocrisy, the, the United States is the biggest hypocrite in the world in regards to human rights. You can talk about Iraq, Afghanistan, what's going on in Syria. Sure. It's, yeah, it feels like, so. It, again, going back to energy markets and the shift in terms of how contracts are being made, and I think we're having like a political shift as well as people are beginning to wake up and realize that politicians have put us in a very precarious situation. Do you think we are at the beginnings of a transition to a a new basically market structure globally? Like, you, like you mentioned, at the end of the year, you're you're going to have a bulk, I don't want to say balkanization, but you're going to have a breakup amongst the EU and NATO nations due to the desperate need for energy. Uh, is this the beginning of Maybe it is a balkanization, a, a massive balkanization of the world and a restructuring of, of just like the global economic. Yes, we are order. already seeing a complete restructure of the global trade for various reasons. So remember that it's not only we have a major inflation worldwide, not only because of the increase in fuel prices, but also because of the increase in food prices and the increase of the price of metals and everything else. The green energy, basically, the price, of, uh, the cost of green energy going up, the cost of electric vehicles has gone up by more than 30%. So we have those major changes. And since we have food shortages and fuel shortages, 
only the rich can afford that. And therefore, we are going to redirect resources toward the rich and the poor are not going to get it. In addition, because of the sanctions, we are going to see Russian products going somewhere else while someone else's products going back to Europe or the United States. So we are seeing a major change, a major shift in international trade, and that shift is costly. Why? Because markets by nature are efficient. So if you have, if you are neighbor to Canada, it's not, it makes perfect sense to trade oil and gas with Canada because they are your neighbor, you reduce costs and markets become efficient in this case. But if you decide, okay, I'm going to fight with the Canadians, now I'm going to import uh, 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 from North Sea, for example, from Brazil, all of a sudden your cost goes up and you are not efficient. So these sanctions are causing all kinds of inefficiencies in everything. Yeah. And that's going to be costly to everyone. And anything that has shortages, only the rich will get it. The poor is not going to get it. The fear now is we are going to, we are going to see term oil in those poorer countries. We are going to see military coups. And uh, as you know, most of those poorer countries, they are producers of some sort of natural resources. So if you look at the coastal areas all the way from Morocco, all the way down to, to South Africa, each one of those countries produce some sort of natural resource that the West depend on. So if we end up with term oil in those countries, all of us are going to suffer because of that, because their exports of whatever they are exporting is going to decline. It's, it's a very scary thing. Like, I mean, I just keep having flashbacks. What was it 2010 or 2012 with the Arab Spring? And what was it like a 20% rise in wheat cost in Egypt led to that revolution and now this is like take the arab spring and put that on a global scale and imagine the type the type of unrest that could unfold and it's it's a very people are not paying attention to another fact uh because of this uh historically when uh george h bush decided to go to war to liberate kuwait we ended up with a problem because he imposed sanctions on Iraq and the U.S. was the largest exporter of wheat to Iraq. And all of a sudden, U.S. farmers got stuck and they couldn't sell their products. So U.S. farmers in places like uh, New Mexico, for example, were demonstrating in the streets against Bush because they got stuck. And the same thing is going to happen with everything we just mentioned. Add to it that French farmers and uh, Dutch farmers, American farmers, are not going to be able to sell their products too. And that's going to cause so many problems around the world. Well, the other question is, are they even going to be able to get the yield on their products that they have in years past because of the fertilizer situation? Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember... Um, in 2000, I think 2005, probably 2006, when natural gas prices were going up in the United States, as you know, they, can went, they went up to $14. We are at nine, I think, right now. Uh, they went up to $14, and many farmers couldn't plant that year. I was in Ohio, so many Ohioan uh, farmers, they couldn't plant their land that year, and many went bankrupt. So the banks basically took over. That's what happened. And that means the following years, we are going to have a shortage of supplies as a result of this. Yeah. 
And then you factor in the diesel shortages as well, even if they do get the supplies and a smaller yield, can they deliver it to market? What are the costs on that going to be? This Absolutely. Is, Absolutely. Like, how would you describe the gravity of the situation right now? How I think uh, right now it is severe and it's going to get worse. And this is really, I mean, look at the stock market, what happened today. Uh, uh, look at what happened to oil prices today. Uh, uh, a lot of people are are losing basically everything they gained in recent years. They just lost it right now. Uh, so we are losing wealth, and uh, if this deteriorates, people are going to lose their jobs. And uh, I think politicians are more worried about re-elections and how they are going to frame their messages in light of this crisis rather than to focus on solving the crisis itself. And what would you what would your advice be? If you right had a now magic it's too wand. late. I mean, th this is kind of what, what uh, it's too late now to to do. I mean, the damage already happened, and why? Because the the season for planting in Ukraine already passed. So the the, the season is gone, and Ukraine is a major exporter uh, of wheat and other products to several poorer countries. You mentioned Egypt earlier. So the damage already been done. So th there is really now we can probably do some mitigation, but that's it. Uh, but more than that, the damage was already done. I think from the beginning, it was clear that they should have done. I'm, I'm, I don't want to delve into politics here, but they should have done. The, the idea that Biden will go to Ukraine was known long ago. And for the intelligence community and for the Biden administration, it was known long, long ago. So they would have done something. And I can tell you, how much time we have left, by the way, because uh, I want to tell a story if there is time. Plenty of time. Okay. Uh, it was in August last year when Jack Sullivan, the National Security Advisor of Biden, sent a letter to OPEC members, especially in the Gulf, asking them to increase production. And the main frame of it was, look, you know, we are recovering from COVID and uh, this recovery needs low prices and therefore we need that. The here U.S. media start talking about we need lower gasoline prices and therefore uh, uh, the whole letter and the asking of those countries to lower, to, to increase production, lower prices is to help U.S. economy. Immediately that day, for those who follow me, they, they, they read my tweets, said, hold on just a second, there is something very fishy here because you have a national security advisor who negotiated the Iran deal in 2014, talking about local gasoline prices? That does not make sense. Then a couple of weeks later, Jack Sullivan goes to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and he came back after he was completely brushed off and ignored. The whole story does not make sense. And for those, again, for those who follow me, they can go back to those tweets. We thought at that time that the administration was having serious problems in the negotiation with Iran, and therefore they are preparing for the failure of the negotiations and they wanted an increase in production, has nothing to do with local gasoline prices. Well, we were wrong too, because we found out it was in preparation for Russia's, Ukraine, for Russia's, uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because at that time, Russia was moving its troops the invasion should have happened in late December. Then it got delayed for various reasons, including to honor the, the Chinese request not to do it during the uh, Olympics uh, in China. So they delayed it. But 
the request to increase production has nothing to do with U.S. Uh, gasoline prices or economic growth because they know between the time they decide to increase production until that oil is in the market, it takes two, three months, which is the time of the invasion. So the idea here is those in high offices knew about the invasion. They should have done something early enough to help us avoid what we are in today, but they did not. What could they have done in your opinion? Well, well, there were several things. I mean, that just like uh, either in form of negotiations or prepare the sanctions in a more rational way, because most of the impact is coming from the sanctions, not coming from the invasion itself. Uh, there could be some bargaining about, because he already got Crimea anyway. So what, what the idea of going back and opening old files, because the president of Ukraine saying, oh, we are going to fight until we get Crimea back. Well, we know he's not going to get Crimea back. So why we are using our taxpayer money uh, for an objective that's not going to happen. <sighs> but the bottom line here is those politicians knew early that this invasion is going to happen. And they, at least, at least, they did not choose the right policies to mitigate the impact. Yeah. And then when the... When the invasion broke out, that's one thing that really frustrated me is the way Biden framed the options on the table. He said, you get sanctions or you get World War III. And he left out another important option, which was diplomacy. Hey, let's meet at the table and, and have a discussion. <laughs> Here is one thing that's kind of really strange. Uh, you have Zelensky, who is the president, and you have the gas pipeline through that goes through Ukraine to supply Europe with natural gas. Russia during the war provided more gas to Europe through that pipeline. Why Zelensky did not stop it while he's asking others to reduce consumption? Siphoning off some for himself. We don't know. But the question is why he is asking them, don't buy, don't buy Russian gas, don't buy uh, Russian oil. But the Russian gas is going through his land, that the land he controls. Why he did not stop it? He could have bombed it. And no one is going to blame him, by the way, if he done that. Yeah. What is, it's all very perplexing. Because what is the end goal here? Like, how does this end? Are we going to go to World War Three? I mean, that's typically in times of. I, I mean, that needs some specialists in this area. I mean, for me, as you know, uh, the the idea here is as simple as this: we are ending up with a situation where energy supply is not enough for energy demand, and therefore, regardless of all the other crises that we are going to have, we are going to have a major energy crisis. We are going to have unprecedented energy crisis, all of us are going to pay the price for it. And I don't know what we are going to do. Uh, I mean, we ended up when, look, there are states right now, they are codifying, codifying this into law that you cannot build a house with natural gas connection. Okay, so all electric. And if the power goes out, how we are going to, how we are going to live? Yeah. Okay. And, and we are in Texas, if we hit 110, 112 degrees this summer, 
we are not going to have enough power in Texas. Okay, people are going to die because of that. California is the same thing. In Europe, it's the same thing. So the, those policies, if they give, like when we had the freeze a couple of years ago in Texas in February, those houses that has natural gas, natural gas saved them. Literally saved them. They can have uh, a, literally uh, a hot meal. They can have hot water. They can have literally uh, a fireplace on gas in this case. Those who were electric, they got stuck. Yeah, they were sleeping in their cars. So, so we are hitting, well, sleeping in the car. By the way, if you go back to the web, we have here in Texas, a mother and her children died because of that. If you go back and see that what she did the mistake because it's too cold, so she showed she can warm up the car and put her children in it, and she did not open the garage door. And three of them went to sleep in the car while it was running because they want the heat. Imagine what happened. And you don't think Texas has gotten his act together since that incident in terms of grid build out and delivery? Well, they did some changes. I mean, we, ju we are just praying right now. We are not going to hit that 110, 112, because this is really right now a, a, a disaster. And uh, the, the other issue related to this is other states depend on Texas. The Texas does not depend on others, but other states depend on Texas. And, and that's another problem. The other issue that's kind of really uh, kind of frustrating is that uh, if you look at Europe right now, they linked... Ukraine to the grid in Europe, uh, in a sense, as a sign, okay, you are no longer dependent on Russia. And the Ukrainians say, well, you know, we are part of, of Euro European grid. Well, guess what? When you have shortage of electricity, you are going to get nothing. What that means is, when you need it the most, it's not there. Yeah. <sighs> we need adults in the room to stand up. Can we make you energies are of the United States? And <laughs> well, I mean, th this is really, I mean, now when we teach young kids, this is where things, where Bush comes to shop. Those kids are so dependent on technology, and I can see it in my children. If we have the internet off for ten minutes, they go crazy. If the power is off for thirty minutes, they go crazy. I'm talking crazy, like literally crazy. You feel like there is something wrong with them. <laughs> okay. So imagine we have a whole generation like that. So if the power goes out for a few days, what's going to happen? It's going to be chaos. Or school, schools are not in session. Those kids are staying home and there is no power. It's not going to be good. That's, I mean, it's... Again, like I said, a very precarious situation. And if you go down the the pessimist path of, of where this can all lead with energy shortage, food prices rising, like we're talking again, like a global spring and people rioting in the streets. Like we thought the riots of 2020 were bad. This commodities driven shortage and crisis is going to be significantly worse. I mean, people do not realize that when humanity uh, over time went through process and they adopted certain policies or certain things, they adopted those things because they are the best and the least risky.
the least risky. This is very important. So there is a reason why we did not move to other things. There is a reason why, if you look at France, for example, at the end of uh, uh, last month, uh, a bus, an electric bus basically was parking in the street and all of a sudden caught fire and it was massive fire and caused fire around that. the house and all this stuff. Well, uh, and we've seen those fires all over the world. Well, there was a reason. We, we had this 100 years ago, by the way. Electric vehicles are very old, older than gasoline vehicles. But there was a reason why we moved out of them to gasoline engines, et cetera, because there were problems. It wasn't a conspiracy. It wasn't anything. It was just a humanity learned its lessons. Why we have to go through those lessons over and over and over. The mistake, by the way, Europe, as you know, had energy crisis before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> and one of the main reasons, because they violated the, the basics of energy policies that I mentioned earlier, but one of them they violated, and this was uh, where they, they paid the heavy price, them and India, that all of a sudden a smart MBA guy says, oh, you know what, we can create some, through financial engineering, we can create some new energy contracts where you can, uh, it will be more efficient and it's better for you. So shift from long-term contracts because they are not efficient, shift to spot market. And the spot market, because we have plenty of supplies at that time, because as you know, with COVID, the demand declined. And they said, look, you can save a lot of money. So if you buy LNG through a contract, you pay $11. If you get it from the market, it's $350. So why renew your contract? So everyone shied away from the contract, went to the spot market, and guess what? The spot prices, prices. the spot market went through the roof. We have the highest prices on record and everyone was screaming and yelling well there is a reason why we have long-term contracts humanity learned long time ago that if you want security you go through long-term contracts this new financial engineering basically is just short-lived we've seen it so many times before and all of a sudden now uh, those countries going back to qatar and other producing nations saying, can we sign long-term contracts? Well, it's too late now, but they can now. And that's, in fact, the Russian gas right now and Russian oil is still flowing to Europe at normal prices because they still have long-term contracts. All the reported record prices or the decline in Russian oil is the spot, not the contract. <sighs> yeah. We are definitely relearning a lot of hard lessons right now. Do you have a, an optimistic path forward? Things seem pretty crappy right now, but is there... I mean, the, the optimism uh, stems from the fact that uh, we are, like you said, we are learning. We have a new generation that is heavily uh, dependent on technology and electricity, and it's the most privileged generation ever existed on Earth. And the losses to them because of what's going to happen are so huge. And they are going to realize that. And once they realize that the losses are huge, they are going to change the future. So the idea here is that they are going to suffer and they are going to have those huge losses. But those huge losses are going to lead to the uh, optimistic uh, view. And if they don't, then God forbid, we are in deep trouble. Yes. Well... 
If you're listening out there, part of the most privileged generation ever live on this planet, one of which I, I am those people, we got to change. We, we got to get voices like Anasa's out there on the front lines, getting this information to people. I, I mean, Anas, thank you for joining us again. You're welcome. I just want to add one more point. This is kind of very interesting right now. Hysterically, if you look at the refugees that's been coming to Europe, they're coming on a boat or something. They probably they have some paperwork and they don't with uh, clothes that they've been wearing for uh, for for a month and uh, mostly torn up. And I mean, they look like really a true refugee. The refugee of today is a girl or a boy who is 16 years old. What they have on worth, let's say, three hundred, four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the clout refugee wearing wearing designer. Well, that shows like how bad it is. Like, if you have refugees from countries where they're able to afford designer clothes, something's going terribly wrong. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But the idea here is that the, the the this change will make things costly, and and because it's costly, we might see the other change to the positive. Yes. Well, let's hope we learn our lesson as quick as possible. Because I've got my second child arriving any week now, and I want to make sure that they're able to to grow up in a world where they don't suffer. Um, and me personally, I'd like to see a lot of change, uh, particularly in terms of how energy policy is being approached and implemented, particularly here in the U.S., but across the world. And so I'm very grateful that individuals like yourself exist and are willing to come on this show and educate us about exactly what's going down on the ground because I think you're a very important voice in the space and hopefully anybody listening to this, please share this with family and friends who are a bit confused as to why prices are going haywire. And given what you said, you just said, uh, it is very important for everyone who follows me to understand this. I also tweet in Arabic and therefore there is translate button at the bottom of each tweet. And you can switch any article to any other language. So that learning is not only from, if you see it, only English. There is wealth of information in other languages. So please use that translate button or switch the browser to another language or to English so you can read what the others are reading too. I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm translating your, your Arabic tweets every time I see them. It's very accurate. The translations are, are, getting, are getting better over time too. Absolutely. Um, Anas, thank you for doing this. I can't wait to do it again. Um, please let me know when you come to Austin, if you do. I will. I will. Thank you. All right. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peace and love, freaks. Take care. <laughs>